Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a show that candidly explores how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you so much. Today on the pod, we're going to try something a little bit different, drawing inspiration from the Spotify year end in review. We wanted to do a review of nine episodes and the corresponding nine guests being really honest, open and vulnerable. A big reason why I started the show is because I thought that the professional work aspects of careers were often overexplored. And I thought the personal life aspects, for lack of a better term, were underexplored. One of the things that we want to do on this episode is highlight some of those guests being open and vulnerable about some of these personal challenges, which I'm super grateful for. Let us know what you think. Let's begin with Ozge Oskan, the chief customer officer at Forder, formerly the CCO of Instabase. She says that the negative emotions that she feels are most often correlated with guilt and fear. Guilt and fear of not being enough for those that rely on her. I ask her how she identifies those feelings and what tools she uses to address them. I used to make this joke, like people talk about burnout and I used to say, hey, I regularly burn out. I'm like the phoenix. I burn out and then I come back. (laughs) So at some point I had to stop that circle because it was not healthy for me. It was not healthy for anyone around me. And that that was my trigger. That's when I said, "Okay, why am I trying to, to your point, overachieve? And what happens if I don't overachieve? And that was the first question that I asked, and the guilt emotion came to the surface. Because everyone asked me the same question, just like you asked, oh, you're afraid of something. And I was really not afraid of something. So you kind of go through elimination, I guess. You can do this with your best friends or people who really know you, or you can also, for instance, I had a coach that I spent some time to actually peeling the onion with someone who can be objective with me. So I'm a big believer in getting that kind of help when you need, because everyone around you is kind of have their own biases as well. And then I I also read a lot of psychology books of understanding yourself, where the emotions are coming from. And that's helped me to put literature around my feelings. When you're burning out, what does that look like? Like when the phoenix hasn't risen yet, but is still in ashes... (laughs) What does burnout look like for Osgay? Now I know my signals. Burnout looks like for me that I haven't done something lately for myself. That is the biggest indicator of burnout. You know, everything else is taking priority over myself. That's number one. Number two is I'm typically a very detail-oriented, hands-on leader professionally, and I get more and more involved in details. I want to know more data, which is my way of not trusting my intuition or gut feeling because I'm trying to balance it with more and more data. That's my biggest clue in professional life that burnout is either in its midway or it's starting to happen. So you had mentioned you're taking care of yourself. The big buckets that I generally see, especially my past guests, is family, their job, their health, and then their friends and community. Let's use that framing. It sounds like where you usually put the bottom is health, like taking care of you, whether that's going for a massage or eating well or working out. Is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. It's funny. I used to feel the same way. In fact, I used to count my hours in a day. And if I didn't get to 10, 
hours of working in a day, I would have to make that up. It was an absolute value that I would quantify in order to know whether or not I am in fact dedicating enough of my time to my career. Did you count the same hours for dedication to yourself? So what I realized was that when you count absolute hours like I did, I'm not counting the quality of the hours, rather just the quantity. And the trigger for me, what was really important for me to realize was that when I focus on my health, when I work out every day, I eat a salad, skip breakfast, have coffee, whatever it is, the quality of my hours is so much higher, so much better. And so when I realized, like for me, it was selfish. I said, if work is my priority right now, because I don't have kids or a significant other that I need to have in my stack rank, I do a pretty good job with my community and my friends, then I want to be more effective in my job. And I think if I take care of myself first, then the hours that I do put into my career are much higher quality. And I can still put in the same amount of hours. They're just better hours. That's spot on. And you use the word, you were feeling selfish of taking care of yourself because you were thinking that you're transferring hours from one bucket to the other. But actually, you are amplifying all the hours that are available to you. And when you let go of that selfish, again, feeling guilty of doing something selfish, you kind of actually help everyone in your circle. There is this culture, I know your podcast name is Grit, right? There is this culture of pushing for grit, pushing for more hustling, pushing for more work, pushing for to be more aggressive, but no one actually thinks about the dark side of those things and what's the cost of them and how to balance them. So I guess it comes with experience, with age, with the number of burnouts you you have in your life, but sooner or later, I'm noticing everyone is kind of coming to the same conclusion that self-centeredness is extremely important. What the hell do you do when a bunch of things are going wrong at the same time? That's what I asked Sarah Patterson, the CMO of Samsara, in this next clip. She started there in 2021, which meant she had a new job, kids, and a pandemic all on her plate at the same time. Here's her unique insight on how she copes with it. So it's a good fine point on what we were just talking about, which is how I center myself. I think through the pieces of what am I excited about for today? And I try to think through that in the morning. And I try to think through that at night. And I do write down, I should do it in a journal, but I do it in an email thread to myself. And I write on it the things I'm grateful for. And I am grateful to be able to have this time and to be there for my mom. I am grateful to have my kids and to be able to be there and have more time with them in this pandemic. And I'm grateful for this exciting new company I get to work at. And I get to help people build their careers. I get to help people do good work. And so I focus on that. And that does center me when I start to feel the anxiety of I've got a lot to do. And then I just say, I am going to do what I can do today, which is bring my best. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to do everything and do everything perfectly. And that is okay. But you've got to be okay with that. And so when things start to creep up, I go, that's the best that I can do. And I tell people that. I'm really open. Like I tell people at work what I'm going through. Because I find, I do. I didn't used to do that. I will say that. I didn't used to do that. I used to think, and part of this was 
coming out of, you know, undergrad, going into investment banking, a very male dominated world with older individuals, I was showing up and trying to show up in a way where I was like, I've got it, right? You can put your trust in me. And so I basically cultivated this way of being where I wasn't talking as much about what I was going through personally, if I was going through anything, because I was worried that was going to show cracks of something. And then I remember at Salesforce, and I remember you've had other guests that have talked about how they've worked with career coaches. They had me take on a new leadership role. It was fantastic. They said, we want to invest in you. We're going to get you a career coach. I did a 360 as part of that. And part of the feedback that came back was people said, it seems too perfect. It seems too all together. It creates distance. And so I started just showing people, this is what I'm going through. These are the struggles that I'm having personally and professionally in the right way. But that actually drew people closer to me. I think Brene Brown said the expression, but vulnerability in yourself is weakness and vulnerability in others is strength. I had a woman named Emily Choi on the podcast. She's the COO and president of Coinbase. She was describing something very similar, which is that she had that same coat of armor on and it was because she was battling with and against all of these other people that didn't have to deal with a lot of the same challenges that she had in her life. Long story short, at Coinbase, she now sends, I think, a weekly email to the company. And in one of her most recent emails, she talked about her father passing. She said she's never gotten such a positive response in anything she's done in her entire career. And people were like, what? It gave them permission to yes. also bring their own stuff to the workplace. It, I don't even know what the difference is. Like your own stuff is your workplace. Like, exactly. I, I, it impacts you every day. It's like, yeah. how are you able to show up? You've got something else on your mind. Yeah. It's going to come through. Like I had to this week, my mom called and she can't speak very much anymore. And so she called me. I wasn't able to pick up. She called my husband. He picked up and, you know, she just said, help right? That's all she could really get out. And so he came into my office and said, you know, let's go over and see if she's okay. And I had to just cancel a meeting I was about to have a one-on-one -on -one with someone. And I sent them a note and I said, I'm so sorry, this is what I've got to go do. And, and I feel if I let people know what I'm going through, it does help bring them closer to me. They know that I'm not showing up for a meeting because I don't care. They know I'm balancing all of these things. I am a real person. I've got all of these different struggles I'm going through too. For people I talk to, especially right now, with everything people are talking about with yeah. mental health, yeah. it's so important, right? This is the way we're connecting with people. This is the way we're helping people. If you're lucky, you can plan for some of the things that might add stress and anxiety to your life, especially as it relates to your career. Andy Byrne, the CEO and co-founder of Clary, hasn't always been lucky and hasn't always been able to plan. After starting a company called Timestock, he went through a wild series of events that he and his family describe as the dark year. My son had meningitis and was in a coma down at Stanford ICU for 17 days, didn't move. We had all kinds of specialists and he had encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. Fortunately, he was young enough. He was only four months and the plasticity of the brain and the skull had not formed yet. So even though there was a lot of trauma 
he's turned out to be great. I mean, it was a very hard year and it was a kind of a shattered dream moment for parents. There was a moment where I remember I was reading this book called Man's Search for Meeting by Dr. Richard Frankel, which is a book that got me through it. And it talks about our ability to deal with a lot of negative stimulus. And then we have a chance to choose how we want to respond to the stimulus. Poor me, I'm a victim. Why is this happening to me? And then eventually you want to shift and you say, this is what it is. Like, Mm. this is my life. I'm going to go for it. And just hearing about what his struggles in the concentration camps back in Nazi Germany and his struggles was an inspiring narrative for us, my wife and I, to get through that time. And so, yeah, it was running a startup, not making any money. Your son almost dies, loses all of his hearing. And we just kept right on going. And now my son is that gentleman, his name is John Max. He is proud to say that he is off to NYU next year. Wow. And fun fact, he's going to the Tisch School of Performing Arts. Wow. It's kind of cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So like you have all these other things going on that are need to be dealt with, but that probably don't matter at that time. How do you deal with anything else when I assume you wake up and go to bed and everything pretty much in between is consumed with your son? Did you do any of the other things that you had to, the company, the employees, the house? I was not in a good state for sure to operate the company and be the best executive. When you have a good team around you, they help you get through Mm -hmm. and you lean on the team. That's so crazy. When you go through tragedy, and by the way, the same year my father-in-law died in the tsunami in 2004 and my mother-in-law died of cancer 45 days later. So it was this like, yeah, it was a sequence of events. So all this was happening with the startup my son, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law. That's why we call it the dark year. Pretty dark year. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much what most people go through in a lifetime. It happened in 13 months for us. And people might be saying, wow, Andy, this is really personal information. Why would you bring that up? I mean, uh, why is it relevant to be talking about this? Because I think a lot of people struggle in life and you want to share that you know they're not alone and you realize that, life can be good again. And I believe that my wife and I see life through a different set of lenses. And there is a silver lining to going through a lot of tragedy in that you just appreciate the color of the sky, the light breeze that goes through and meeting a new person that you think is super cool. You know, you're more present and you're just more grateful for the things that you have in your life. When things pile on, like that, what is your instinct? Is it problem solving mode? Is it support? Is it shutting down? Mm. What is your natural, like, how does that feel internally? Well, I think it's changed, right? I mean, dramatically over time. I mean, back then, 2003 and 2004, it was paralysis. It was just don't know how to think about how life is going to be. And I didn't have the mental keyword, mental capacity to deal with a lot of that trauma. And to this day, we, my wife and I still have PTSD on stuff that we see happen to 
whether it's in a movie or mm-hmm. something that we see happens to one of our kids where we're jumping out and trying to help even though they're 18 and 19. <laughs> but the book, Man's Search for Meaning, really calls this out is that if you focus on how you train your brain to react to a lot of chaos and a lot of negative signal, and if you can just be with it mentally and you can say, wow, this is interesting. You know, there's the idea of why is this happening to me? And I think this is in the book versus what is this asking of me? How, what's my job now that I have all of this crazy stuff that's going on around me? Back then, I couldn't do that, right? Now, I've been doing meditation work for now half decade, and I'm 51, and so I'm learning a lot about psychology of how the brain works and how people behave, and I think that how I deal with it now is I can effectively compartmentalize and say, okay, we have a real problem here. Let me be with the emotion. You can't ignore the emotion. The emotion's going to come, and you know you can't just... You're like, okay, here it all is. I'm feeling it all. This is horrible. Be with it. And then you can say, if you've done that really well, you actually have an easier time of saying, okay, I'm going to know. I'm going to go put that on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And now how do I operate logically and how do I execute? That's a skill set. That's a mental skill set that you can hone over time that I think can be taught. Now, some people don't have the cognitive or psychological ability to do that. They suffer from some sort of disorder, depression, bipolar, whatever it might be, and they can't. But for those that are fortunate enough to have the capacity, you can actually learn this skill and be really good. And so how do we put that in a work context? I started Clary from scratch. We're now 600 people. And when you're at this level of scale, there's always something that's not going right. Like the law of large numbers, right? And that stuff, you have to get really good mentally at just saying, these are things that I just have to deal with. And I remember talking to a colleague of mine who said, I came to him with a set of problems and a set of things that were going well. And he said, on the right side, tell me about these good things that happened. I said, well, we had raised and we had closed a bunch of customers and... I forget what else, what else it was. Maybe we'd acquired a new office space. On the other side, a key engineer had left. A customer had said that they're really disappointed in the latest release and maybe something else. He said, there's good things and there's bad things. And he went through this mental framing with me of, okay, let's just look and how do you feel about all the good things? How do you feel about the bad things? And you go back and forth and back and forth. And he said, now let's bring them all together. Let's bring the three good things and the three bad things together. And look at them. And how do you feel? And I said to him, I feel neutral. They're just things. They're just moments in time. And I think that learning for me is that you have these amplitudes of good things and bad things and how we deal with the emotional amplitudes of it. Going back to your question about how do I deal with big things, struggle, you know, problems that we face, the chaos, if you can kind of smooth out the amplitudes and you can look at them as just things and you can expand yourself out on a longer time horizon is 
Jubin 10 years from now, what would Jubin say to Jubin today about the current problem? 10 years from now, Jubin's going to say, dude, it's fine. It's all going to work out. I've heard you describe yourself as the old Andy and the new Andy. And I think that that's kind of what you're referencing. The way that I've, I was just talking to one of our founders about this. He was just talking about how his emotional band has become so narrow. Like it's very thin in the sense that it doesn't swing. Mm. It doesn't swing that much. When I hear about the old and new Andy, is it more specific to learning how to be more just flatline? I think it depends on internal versus external. So what do I mean by that? I actually don't subscribe to the fact that you're supposed to have this the way you feel versus the way you express. Feeling is internal, expression is external. So on feeling, I think it's really important for you to be able to feel the highs and the lows, to take it all in. We freaking won. That was awesome, right? Take all that in. Use that. And the stuff that's bad, you should be okay with being really sad and really emotional and really bummed internally, right? But then you should know how to actually use those emotions when you're external you are that stable steward so the emotional band externally is not this bipolarish oh my god andy's off the charts so excited now oh god he's so depressed and maybe that's what that founder meant my band is more narrow yep therefore they're a stable steward and i feel so much more comfortable around that person because they're just so calm Internally, I think you should let those emotions, you know, you should really feel into it. Caring for yourself is hard enough, but caring for everyone else on your team is a skill that few leaders have expertise in. The former CRO of Notion, Olivia Nottebaum, is one of those leaders. Here she is a few months ago talking about the impact we leave on others in the context of what you leave on your tombstone. So I've spoken to people on your team and I asked them a lot of questions about you. And one of the superpowers that I was told you're flinching in anticipation (laughs) (laughs) you are very skillful in accountability but also empathy and I think those two things generally speaking are very hard to do in tandem and I dug into that point a little bit more to really understand what he meant and he told me that after he had his first son you would send monthly gifts as a reminder that you care. Is that true? Yeah, I do think that this is one of the things that is most important is that the people who show up at work have a life. (laughs) It's such an obvious point. But there is just a reality to the members of your team who are showing up every day and working and challenging themselves and collaborating with their peers, all of that, they obviously have other things going on in their life. And there are certain milestones in one's life that really, when you look back on your life, you will name as like the 10 most important things that ever happened to you. And I think having a respect for those milestones and understanding what it's like to go through those milestones, because they're often quite difficult or challenging and new, is really important. And I remember that 
people did that for me when I had my children, that I got gifts from all over the world. And it was this nice recognition of, okay, we're going 100 miles an hour, but you just had a child, (laughs) right? And like, this will be part of you for the rest of your life now. And part of how we work together and part of how you show up and part of the concerns that you have outside of work and all of that. So I do care deeply about each of my leaders on a team and the accountability part and empathy part. It's hard for me. I am high empathy, but I'm also high accountability. And so sometimes I angst a little bit in the background, but I do try to strike that doing the right thing for the company while also taking someone on their career journey and their life journey. What are you angst about? Before I need to have a tough conversation or tap someone in one direction or another, I do try to put myself in their situation and think, okay, how would I best receive something And how would I be able to hear it? But then I have to ask myself, well, how is this person different from me? Because they're not, you know, I don't work with all of people like me and that's a good thing, right? And so then try to flex and think through, okay, what are actually their priorities? What do they need to hear? All of that. You know, you just have to make the time to do that. And there's a little bit of worrying in there for sure. If I didn't care, that would be far easier (laughs) If I go back to the 10 most important milestones that you were just describing, yeah, how many of those, as you look back, are career-related? Oh, very few. I would say none. None? Yeah. No one is putting on your tombstone was COO of X company. I mean, really, who cares? <laughs> I think it's all about how you made people feel, how you showed up to your friends and to your family, and what kind of person you were. And no one's perfect, obviously, and everyone is working on different things. And I make a ton of mistakes, and I try to promise myself that I'll never make the same mistake twice. But yeah, of course, over the course of your life, what's most important is the impact you have on others. Yeah, so I mean, I think of the milestones of my life more about the person I became as a result of those things. I ask only because... Maybe this is just me, but what I get the most angst about are the things that I perceive to be big milestones in my life. Generally speaking, those are work-related. Right before I get to my tombstone and someone asks me, what do you regret? I guarantee you the answer is going to be that I misidentified or misassigned all of these career-related milestones as in my top 10. I don't think I'm alone there. That's why I ask you. I think this is something that we all grapple with. And I think this is also potentially an American topic. (laughs) I do think in the United States, more so than in other places, and it comes from a very good place, we tend to identify achievement with titles and all of that, and not to make a gross generalization, but I think it's more for those folks who have lived in the United States or grown up in the United States and then go live in Europe, it's a little more about how do you lead your life balance-wise, like what do you do on the weekends, actually? (laughs) But I do think about this topic a lot because at the end of the day, 
and especially as someone who thinks about raising my children, is what is it that makes people happy and makes for a healthy society? You can accomplish great things, and I think it's great that you have important milestones and you're challenging yourself to achieve those. And of course, I have done that myself in terms of putting really hard hurdles in front of myself. But at the end of the day, what matters will be the peace that you have with yourself and not what other people think. And I think that's easy to say, but very hard to convince yourself of at times or oneself of. And so how do we all sit and ask ourselves the question of, am I doing the thing that I find enjoyment from and where I feel like I'm doing the right thing for my loved ones and my family and society. Yeah, and everyone finds their paths in a different way. Somehow they let me onto Harvard's campus for this one, where we hear from their longtime professor, Mark Roberge. Previously, he was the CRO of HubSpot, and today he manages Stage 2 Capital. Mark describes how on two different occasions, his generally manageable level of anxiety became unmanageable. It's extremely honest, extremely vulnerable, and one that I really respect and admire him for going through. You have talked about, actually you haven't talked about, but you briefly mentioned it to me, struggling with anxiety. And I I struggle, like I'm very, this is more of a selfish conversation because I struggle with it a lot. And I don't actually know how to talk about it very well because it's a weird thing to talk about. And again, like in a high performing culture where things are going really well, it's a tough thing to talk about because it's like, well, what do you have to be anxious about? Sometimes like I put so much pressure on myself to just do a great job. Like even here, like I'm coming here and I'm like, this is going to be a home run thing with Mark. I'm going to Harvard campus. I know exactly what I'm getting into. It's going to be awesome. But I was really anxious and I was trying to figure out in the Uber, like, where is that anxiety coming from? And it's because I wanted it to be great. I just put so much pressure on myself to deliver the goods. I want this to be super valuable for people when they listen. So maybe that's a really long setup for like, is that how you experience it? And how did that feel in hyper growth during those 39 months or whatever it was? Like, was it present? Was it worse? Yeah, I think I probably experienced general level anxiety, which I think you're kind of talking about. And that's probably like what maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing like a quarter of the population experiences for various reasons where it's public speaking or like being, I don't know, for all different triggers. But I had debilitating anxiety and I, I've had two significant bouts of it. One was when I first discovered the degree of my anxiety was right after the, uh, in the 2001 World Trade Center situation where I was at the Trade Center. I was at ground zero and made it through there. But six months later, some weird stuff started to happen in my head. Like I felt like I was in a fishbowl and I couldn't talk and I couldn't breathe. And I thought I was having like a stroke or something. And I went to the emergency room and they're like, no, you're having a severe anxiety attack. And I had about a six month bout where if you've seen the movie, what about Bob? Mm-hmm. I was pretty close. Whoa. Like hard to leave the house. So it was severe. And I had to go through a lot of therapy. So a little bit of medication, some natural techniques like meditation and that I've in yoga that I've taken through my life. And I got under control and actually became a pretty good public speaker for a different reason. And then during HubSpot, I had another major one. I was toward the end of my time there. I was given a speech in front of the company. I had one and I just shut down. In the middle of the speech. Yeah, just shut down. 
Like everyone's like, "Ooh, what happened, dude? Like you had a stroke. You just like stopped. Like you started blabbering." And I had another six month recovery from that. So extreme anxiety. And I've got a small amount of medication that I use and breathing techniques and all that stuff. So, you know, I talk about it because there is a stigma associated with it. I think we're crawling out of it. I think the current generation of like millennials and Gen Zs are much more open about it and forgiving about it and don't carry that stigma. There shouldn't be a stigma. And, you know, I'm a bit of like a spiritual Buddhist now and I'm always looking for my purpose and stuff. And one of those purposes is to talk about this because for whatever reason, society values some of the things that I have accomplished. But when I admit to everyone that I have severe anxiety, it gives other people comfort in talking about. I've had a lot of people approach me about that to talk it through. And so it should be something that we, I don't know, like a disability, I suppose, that we can be more public about whether it's depression, anxiety, any sort of mental illness. So that was, that was my piece. Wow. Yeah. On the second example that you gave on the HubSpot thing, what triggered it? I don't know. I don't know. And then the six-month recovery, like you're just in home? Oh, uh, no. It's battling through it. Like I don't, I want to take it face on. Like the first one happened in an airplane, I want to get right back in an airplane. Second one happened on stage, I want to get right back on the stage. They all have like different triggers and where it was. The second one was largely around public speaking because I, that's where I had the breakdown. And so it took me like six months of like getting back out there all the time. Like, oh my gosh, I went back to my like canned speech just because I was comfortable with it. My preparation time for a speech went from 15 minutes to five hours, you know, of like practice and visualization. It was just cranking through it. The first one, the trigger was on the plane. Yeah, that's where it ended up being a little bit like... I, you know, obviously 9-11, everyone had their own experience. And what do you mean you were like, you were right? I lived across the street. So I was there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, when I left my apartment, I had to block my eyes from glass that was coming down. Like I was there, right? You know, some really sad things happened that day. And I was very fortunate that I lost one friend, but nothing else major for in my life in particular. But then like six months later, all these like weird, this weird thing happened to me and what felt like a stroke and Actually, I didn't know much about panic attacks and anxiety at the time. But then when someone diagnosed me, it was like to the T textbook in terms of the timing of it, like post-traumatic stress disorder. It was like exactly the timing. So that one was largely triggered in airplanes and confined spaces where I couldn't like get out. It's insane, man. I appreciate you sharing. One of the things that I think a lot about is during scale, when entrepreneurs and operators are scaling through these triples, doubles, these just like insanely exponential compounding companies, I believe that the psychology of scale is actually more difficult than the tactics of scale. Probably right. More people talk about the tactics, mm-hmm. yep. but I believe you can learn the tactics from others, bring on people to help you, hire people, advisors, all of those things. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, psychology is a big play. I'm trying to like bring that back to my world because it's like, there's so many. Like the endurance. Yeah. That, I mean, because I'll give you an example. It's like, I warn my students when like they're on the founder track and they're signing up to 80 hours a week. Don't see your friends. Don't see your family ramen noodles. Like, just be careful. That's the story. And that might be the first six months, but you can't last 10 years. You know, they always say the classic, like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that certainly applies here. 
but I'll give you specifics on what that was for me. Pretty much every day, my calendar was blocked from 2 to 3.30 and I worked out, you know, all through the crazy journey. I was trying to figure out my work out schedule because I had an hour commute from the North Shore. For a couple months, I was trying to get up at 5 a.m. to run before, and that was hard. A couple months, I was trying to get home at 8 o'clock and run after dinner, and that was hard. And I realized, why don't I just join a gym right next to my office, cruise out at 2 every day. I have my stuff there. No one even knows I'm gone, so I don't have to worry about the cultural impact. In fact, like nowadays, maybe people might talk about it, but I had to do it. That was me. When everyone else smoked a butt or played foosball, I went for a run. And I did my, like, I was up at seven on the phone, drove into work. By the time two o'clock hit, I had had seven hour day in. I went for my run. I was ready for the next seven hours. So I did that every day. And I can't tell you how many like huge quarterlies, like the minute you slip on anything to push that, you're screwed. I did not let that slip, no matter what was competing with it. And the other piece was my, I had my young family during that journey. I left the office and people knew this. I left the office at 3.30 every Wednesday and Friday to see my kids. So every Wednesday and Friday, I had a good five, six hour stretch, You know, had dinner with them, put them down, put them through the shower routine on Wednesday and Friday. And every weekend I worked, never when they were awake. During the two hour nap, 7.30, they were in bed. I mean, they were three and four, whatever. You know, they were in bed at 7.30. I could put five hours in on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. So I found my 80 hours, but I still... I was a very present dad, I think, given the job I took on, and I maintained my health. There aren't many interviews that I'm legitimately nervous for, to the point where I have to have a glass of wine before I sit down with my guests. Ariana Huffington was one of them. I wasn't nervous because of who she was, but because of what she represented. She delivers on everything that she represents from a very, very early, early, early age. Enjoy. There was never a moment when we thought it wasn't going to make it. There was a moment when we didn't know how sustainable it would be in terms of profitability. But that's when I collapsed in 2007, having bought into the collective delusion that in order to succeed, I had to be always on. I didn't have time to take care of myself. I was a founder. I was a mom. I was divorced, so I collapsed, hit my head on my desk, broke my cheekbone, and that was the beginning of my realizing that burnout was not just my problem, but a global epidemic. So I started covering these issues exhaustively on the Huffington Post. And in fact, by the time I left in 2016, 50% of our traffic wasn't coming from politics. That's incredible. I've heard a backstory. Tell me if this is true or not. So you were going around evangelizing, not as a business, but just evangelizing this idea that burnout is a serious problem in our society. Did Jack Ma, did you go visit him, the founder of Alibaba? Uh, what happened is that Jack Ma was holding the first women's conference that Alibaba held in Hongzhou, you know, his headquarters. What year around was this at? That was 2014. That was After not the Huffington about the Huff Post, before Thrive, Thrive as a business started. Exactly. Okay. So I was invited to come and speak. I had just published Thrive, the book. And when I was asked to go and speak, I assumed they wanted me to speak about media because that's all I was speaking about. 
And I was told by Joe Tsai, who was like Jack Ma's number two at Alibaba, no, we want you to speak about Thrive. He said, Jack is really interested in that. So I went, I spoke, and then that night, Jack had a dinner for the speakers, and I was sitting next to him, and he had heard my speech about the need to move beyond success being fueled by burnout and what it was doing to individual lives and the culture. And he said, if I were you, I would leave the Huffington Post. You've done that. And launch a company around these themes and bring it to businesses. And he said, if you do that, I will uh, invest. And at the time, I honestly thought he was crazy. Absolutely no intention of ever leaving the Huffington Post. I loved it. It was doing incredibly well. We were in 18 countries. We had won a Pulitzer. You know, it was a big global media company. And it was my baby. It had my name. Why would I leave it? (laughs) He planted a seed in a way because two years later, I did leave. I had gotten to the point where I thought, as I was going around the world, speaking around these themes of Thrive and then a book I wrote on sleep, the sleep revolution, I realized the conversation had changed. We had moved from, oh, does anybody really need to sleep? Isn't that for losers? Isn't John Bon Jovi right? You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. To, yes, I know, I know, but how do I do it? So we had moved from, do I need to do something to how do I do it? And I couldn't do that through a media company. I had to build a behavior change technology company. And that was really my mission and my passion by then. And it was incredibly hard. I I can't say that it was an easy decision. I remember talking to a friend and saying, I just don't know what to do. I'm making this list of pros and this list of cons. And she said, don't make lists. You know what your heart wants. Close your eyes, take a deep breath and jump. And that's what I did. So I was literally leaving a very successful company to go to a second startup. In your mid-60s? 66. And starting in a little office in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Am I over-Hollywoodizing this idea that there was no moment, no aha moment, no things or data points in that two-year span from when Jack laid the seed into the ground to when you ultimately decided to do it, that you said, okay. There was a series of events and conversations when I saw that people wanted to know how to lead a healthier, more fulfilling life, how to have what the Greek philosophers called a good life that was more than just a life where the goals were money and power. So I think at some point, all these conversations led to one answer, which is I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to build that and being willing to take the risk and fail. I'd argue your opportunity cost is higher than most founders that are probably at the CEO summit in these next couple of days. Did you but ever... Let me tell you something yeah. funny, Jubin, yeah. because talking to some of the founders who are here, It was absolutely stunning. I flew in with eight other founders from New York. Mm -hmm. Everybody was talking about 
how much they sleep, how important it is for them, how they prioritize it, how critical it is for their decision making. That is seismic. I mean, you know, you are in this world, and I'm not saying this is universal. <laughs> there are still plenty of founders who are buying the old belief system. But it's amazing what's happening. Literally, people were wearing their hoops and their aura rings, and they're comparing <laughs> deep sleep and heart rate variability. And so the world is changing in front of our very eyes. When I launched Thrive in 2016. Our mission was to end the stress and burnout epidemic. People were not talking about burnout much. Now, it's part of every conversation. It's part of every business article around the employee experience. And that's a big shift. After talking with Scott Cook, founder of Intuit, I realized that I was at the rare intersection of someone with deep, deep humility and incredible ambition with world-class execution. I'd never seen anything like it. There's a reason he's a legend, and I'm so, so grateful that he opened up not only about his career journey, but about the personal steps that he took along the way and the challenges that came with it. On Monday morning, after the weekend, were you excited to go to work? Oh, it was a mix. I'd say when I was uh, CEO, there were definitely days where I was totally excited about coming into work. And there were other days when I dreaded it. Because I didn't have the all the skill set I needed, particularly as the company grew. And on the days when I knew I had things to do that I wasn't good at or didn't like doing, then I dragged in those days. And it's one thing to talk about. One thing that I've learned since is it's really important to work on improving the stuff where you're not yet good enough. Mm -hmm. And that is really the hallmark of a great person. I was a lot happier on average once I got Bill Campbell to come in and replace me as CEO. And then I could focus almost all my time on the stuff that I'm much better at and that I like to do. And today, do you think you would be happy if you were, I know you're a hiker, you like reading. Could you do just that? Or do you think you would, I don't know, is that not giving you enough? Yeah, I think I voted with my feet on that one because I certainly could afford to do that if I chose to. Yeah. To kick back and do things outside of work. I don't think you're doing this for the money. Yeah, that's right. You know, if it's not the stuff at work, then it's the stuff, you know, right now I'm reading the the written work from our philanthropy team for our meeting tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So we're, we kind of act like a venture capitalist in a way, but without getting equity and invest in nonprofits. But we have the same discipline and rigor and there's a lengthy memo in advance that describes the decision the team wants to make. And my wife and I review that and then we do team meetings. So it's the same sort of work I do at work. And then we coach our team on how we can do better. So it's the same kind of work. I think it's just the mix. You wanna make sure you got enough personal time in the mix, and I get more than the rest of the employees that into it. These days? Yeah, these days. You felt like you're making up for lost time from the old days? Oh, I think time once lost is lost forever. You know, particularly time with your kids and family and when they're young. I don't view it as that. I wish I could get that time back. But Do I, you? There's not a way. In the sense that you're building into it. You're doing what was required of you to build that company. Doing it over again, would you have reallocated your time in different ways? One can run that experiment multiple ways. I think starting over with no knowledge of the future, I'd be the same person I was. But with the knowledge of the future I have now, I would have done some things differently that would have meant spending my time a little bit differently. And I like to believe that would have enabled me to, in addition to spending a bit more time at key times with the kids, also to have clearer memories. The thing you, that I most miss is even with the time, 
that I had with the kids, I don't have the clearest memories of those times. And I'd love to be able to replay the movie in my mind mm. of those times because they were so rich and meaningful at the time. And, and joyful. Boy, and joyful and painful. You get the whole mix, the whole panoply of emotion. But it's that ability to live and relive that that I really miss because life was such a rush. Do you think that you don't recall that time that well because there was just so many things happening? Or do you think it was the specifics of, maybe I'll ask a different way, do you remember the times of joy and pain in work more vividly than you do those times in your personal life? I think I have faded memories of both. I'm not a writer, but I wish I were, and I could have jotted and made some sort of little journal entries every day, just noting what was important in the life of the day. I would treasure that today if I had it. And the reason I ask is maybe like, do you think you were not present in the personal life because you were consumed with work? Or do you think maybe you're not present at work because you were consumed with the personal life? And just really hard to find that balance when they're competing priorities in that way. And life is filled with competing priorities. It's, it's always that way. And if you don't feel priorities competing, then you probably feel left out. Isn't it hard to regret that looking backwards? Isn't it yeah. just unfair because you were doing what you thought was best at that time right. based on the set of circumstances? Yeah, I don't regret the time use as much as I regret not having the clear recollections of the times that I had at work with the family. You know, some people just have that gift of recollection. Bill Campbell, for example, he could cite chapter and verse of meeting after meeting he'd been in, discussions he'd had with people, this rich memory and I wasn't born with that gift. So the intervention is find some alternative way of recording that. And I wish I had done that. Mm. You know, maybe wake up each morning and write what was significant yesterday. When I sat down with Tom Mendoza, former president of NetApp, I realized that it actually might be possible for one person to put an entire company on their back. There's a catchphrase that he uses a lot that I wanted to ask him about. And I realized it's more than a catchphrase. It's a pivotal moment in his career boiled down to a simple sentence. Here's the clip. I speak first. You've said that in business and life, you find out you have a friend when you have a problem. And when I heard you say it, the question that came to my mind was, when has Tom needed a friend? Let me finish that quote, though. Please. You find out if you got a friend in life when you have a problem. And unfortunately, in business and in your personal life, almost everybody's had the experience where people you expect to step up don't. People you never thought would do. And your relationship changes forever with both sides. So you think back to a big problem you've had, and maybe you went to somebody for help. Some people will come through and others will disappoint. And have you experienced that? I have, yeah. When the dot-com bubble happened, there was a lot of things that were very problematic. One case, I let my expenses get ahead of me, thinking I had that money and I didn't. And I'll never forget going to talk to Dan Worman over and about it. And I wasn't asking him for anything. But he said, if you need anything, I'm going to take care of it. Personally, I'm going to take care of it. Never had came to that, didn't have to do it. But I'll never forget the fact that he said that to me and meant it. Now, I can tell you in other times, so I went to Stanford in 89 for their Stanford executive program. And I got a new boss right before that. Guy had never sold in his life, came out of manufacturing. But we needed a VP of sales, long story short. And I met this guy and he said to me, I'm not sure about you. You're too much of a sales guy. I'm looking at him like, 
I run sales. I ran half the <laughs> half the company sales, half the U.S. And the guy who they put in the East came out of marketing. And this guy, he said, he's got much better slides than you have. That's what he said to me. I said, he has much better slides than I have. That's really what we're going to go down. And so I, I had been in the company eight and a half years. And I was pretty certain I didn't want to stay in the company. I went and saw the CEO who I was close to. And I said, look, I think it's time for me to go. He's like, why do you say that? I said, you're not as involved as you used to be at all. The people that you're putting in, I don't respect. I don't think our company's going to do well. They got bought out for not a lot of money three years later after being very, very successful. And I said, so I, I just don't want to be a problem. And he said to me, well, you had put on your reviews that you want to go to either Harvard or Stanford for their executive six-week program. Because I just thought that would be a good thing to do because you, you're in with a lot of non-tech people and you get rounded out, I thought. So he said, why don't you do that? I hear what you're saying. I'm going to make significant changes when you get out. If you feel like I've done the right things and you want to be a part of it, I'd love to have you stay. So I go to Stanford and you're not allowed to stay in your job when you do that. And I'm getting calls from people working for me. Man, this guy's saying negative things about you. This guy was just coming in. He's, he's like, oh, I'm uncovering all kinds of stuff, which is all ridiculous. He was setting it up, right? And I was super popular in the company. So he had to set it up like I was over my head type thing. And so... I come out of there and I didn't feel one moment of tension because I didn't care if it was either going to get a lot better. Or I don't want to be a part of it. I get out and I went and saw the CFO of the company who was a good friend. And I could tell he was influenced by this guy because he's saying, I understand there's some issues in this and issues in that. I said, you understand that? Yeah. I said, you, you, so you're not asking me a question. You're understanding something you don't know anything about. Is that really what's going on? And he said, well, I'm just telling you, I'm hearing, I'm hearing. I said, I know what you're hearing. So this guy comes in, who's my new boss, and he started to pontificate about something. I said, let me make this simple for you. I'm leaving. And he was terrified because I was close to the CEO. And that really was his only concern that I could screw up his life. Nothing to do with the business. And he said, well, we'll have to negotiate a package. I said, whatever you give for the amount of time, I've been here eight and a half years. I wanted a guy, whatever that is for everybody else, give me that in amount. I want to leave now. I thought he was going to throw a party. He was very, very excited. Best thing I ever did. He said, do you have a job? I said, no, I didn't have a job before I had this job. I just don't want to work for you. Same thing I told the, the CEO of the other company. I said, you clearly don't want me on your team. That CFO told me many years later, that's one of the reasons he thought the company failed. That guy, within six months, tried to go to the board to get the CEO fired. Wow. He was trying to, right? But my point was, at that time, People around me that I knew real well, a number of them drifted, even though they knew me, started to listen to stuff that was stupid. So I didn't try and convince them I was right or wrong. And I had other people say to me, I know what he's saying is ridiculous. It was things like, you know, I'm not close enough to the business. I was closer than anybody else. It was just inherently false. But if you're not in the room and the discussion's happening, people could sell anybody anything. And so... I knew a number of the people who came with me to my next couple of companies that knew what I was right. And the other people no longer mattered to me. Wow. So I always believe you find out if you got a friend, when you got a problem, everybody's on your side when you're winning, go back to that dot com bubble. I found out I had tons of friends. I honestly didn't have anybody react poorly. Some people said I got to leave for my own family. That's fine. That's not a, 
But I'm talking about when you really need help, who steps up? And by the way, I thought our culture should be, because our customers who have all their data on us, they got to believe that if they ever have a problem, we will be there. That's the number one thing that has to happen to build a company is you got to have trust. And you've been a lifelong startup guy. You know the number one thing at the beginning of a company is that customer has to trust your word. That's all you have. And if you say we're going to do it, I don't care if it costs us money and we screwed up and we said the wrong thing. We got to do it. Look, I'll do it as long as it's not painful to me type company. <laughs> it's, not, totally. it's not somebody I want to do business with. Totally. This last one's with my friend, Chris Degnan. In a lot of ways, I feel like I owe a lot of this show to him. He put us on the map. Chris was employee number 10 or so at Snowflake before they even had a website. And today he's the CRO. He came on the show in February of 2021 and he talked about anxiety and the motivations that he has around a fear of failure. We had lofty goals. I was always given lofty goals and I would always beat those. And so it was the way you take the stick out of my hand is by me missing my number. Then all of a sudden I lose control. So, dude, there's a lot of anxiety in me that I'm sitting there saying, I can't miss my friggin' number or I'm going to get my job. I have a three-month contract. I always say that. I always have a three-month contract. Every quarter, the board, the CEO, they reserve the right to fire me if I miss my number. And so that's how I've always operated. I'm my own worst enemy. I have the fear of failure. And I think Frank, I think, on the one hand, likes the anxiety I have of he has someone on the watchtower looking over saying, what's coming over? What's going to kill us? He's thinking about that and I'm thinking about that. And there's a lot of other people think, and I think that's the way he likes it. And that's how I am as a human being. So I'm always looking at what's the worst thing. And I'm very open and transparent about it. So if I don't like something, I'm going to say, man, I don't like this thing. Right. And you can tell if I'm lying to you, I'm the worst liar. And so people will read through that and say, Hey dude, something's up. What's going on. And so I think that's it is I think with Bob, he's, a very passionate human. And he and I would have very passionate conversations. We'd hug it out afterward. And I think that was it is we would make each other better. It's like brothers getting into a fight. Mm-hmm. You punch each other, but afterward you'd hug and you'd be like, okay, let's go and let's go to war. And that's how I am. It's just very open, transparent. And so it's hard for me sometimes to celebrate these great deals and say, oh, we did this hundred million dollar deal. Who cares? What's next, right? I just yep. almost like, what's next, right? Yep, makes sense. Okay, let's go to failure. There's a couple of things that I've heard you say that you ask in interviews. The first question that you've asked is, tell me your life story. The second is, give me the toughest situation you've been in. And it can be personal or professional. Maybe I'll start with, what's your relationship to failure? How do you think about failure? Are you motivated by it? Are you scared by it? Do you run from it? Do you embrace it? Well, failure drives me because I do not want to be a failure. You can read into that. I mean, we can get into a psychotherapy session for sure on my childhood. They say it's better to never have flown first class than fly first class and then have to fly economy. That was my life. I had a very good life. And then there was a massive pivot in my life right about when I was 13 years old, where I all of a sudden had to pay for everything I did or I wouldn't do anything. And so I had to, you know, go and bag groceries and all this other stuff. So my whole philosophy has always been, I could sit there and I could feel sorry for myself and say, shit, man, there's some bad things that have happened in my life. Or I can say, let's go and not feel sorry for myself and execute. And 
you know, getting up every day and going and bagging groceries or becoming a bank teller or mowing lawns or you know, washing dishes in a sorority house in college. Like I did all of the above and I've always done that. I would shine your shoes to make sure that my family was fed. That's how I operate and that's it. And so I think that's what drives me is I don't want anyone to take anything away from me. I want to be able to take it away. I want to be able to walk away, not being taken away from me. And I certainly have that fear of it being taken away from me. I thank you for sharing that. And when you say like earlier, like, hey, every quarter, I feel like I'm on a new three-month contract. You think it comes from that? I know that I am being measured right now. And I have an opportunity to execute and perform right now and just not fail. And do you think that paranoia almost feeds from a place of, I will not fail. And if I do, this contract is up? 100%. This is so weird. I keep a journal of failures and I write down every failure that I have had professionally mostly. And I look at that every year or so. And I'm also terrified of failure. I love to win, but I despise losing, despise it. The losses in my mind are always seared much more deeply than the wins are. And I write down this journal of failures and I was asking myself kind of like before I wanted to talk to you about this, why do I do that? What's my relationship to failure? I thought it's probably because failure is a very temporary state. And I've always thought of failure as something that happened. And then how did I respond to that? And I think when I look back on it, I reflect on what it taught me about me in order to overcome that. And I can look back on those failures and say, oh yeah, I'm doing okay right now because failure was ephemeral. And then I got over it and I did something about it. And that gives me strength today. Does that resonate? Do you feel that way? Is that weird? I don't know. No, it's not weird at all. I mean, I, I, I mean, we're a little bit screwed in the head thinking that way, but I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, man, I mean, I think that's how I, I think about things. I mean, look, I saw the writing on the wall. I looked at Bob Muglia as like a father to me, right? I mean, it was heartbreaking, literally heartbreaking to me to see him taken out a snowflake. And I kind of go back in my mind of saying, what could I have done differently to make that not happen? And yeah, I mean, that was a big deal. And then there's like little other things along the way. Can you talk about a couple of those scars? Any moments that are shining beacons of cringing inside of things that you were pretty obvious failures for you? And again, in this meteoric rise, I remember there was 10 reasons why Snowflake as a company was supposed to fail. AWS will kill you. Hadoop will kill you. Gross margins will kill you. Switching costs will kill you. Hiring multiple CEOs will kill you. Your subscription pricing model will kill you. Sales and marketing costs will kill you. There was all these existential moments of snowflake. What about for you? Any moments that you feel like sharing? I think there's organizational things, errors that I've made. I grossly misunderstood the importance of sales operations. That's one as we scaled, people say it's important as head of sales. It's the hardest job to fill. And it's probably one of the most important jobs to have is having a partner that can help you and also making sure that that partner has the appropriate resources. A lot of times you don't want to fund that. So the other thing is I had someone working for me who managed up to me extremely well. He and I had a tremendous relationship with. He was like my old boss from EMC, two people that I respected. He was extremely tough, but I became disconnected. I said, oh, the numbers look good. Everything's fine. The numbers can lie to you. You have to see through the numbers. You have to actually look in and say, how are things going? Because people will put up with only so much 
because the company's a rocket ship, because you're part of this. And there are mistakes like that around people that I regret that I kind of check. I don't know if checkout's the right word, but just kind of let that happen. And man, those are material mistakes that I made culturally for the company. And those are things that I'm are cringeworthy to me that I let that happen. And, and you constantly have to do things like, okay, what do you do to avoid that? You try to do skip level meetings. You try to talk to more people. People don't view you as human. I mean, I remember being at sales kickoff this year and someone coming up and saying, oh my God, it's Chris Degnan. I'm like, so what? I'm not some amazing person. Let's have a real conversation. So I think trying to consistently keep it real and understanding everyone in the organization, making time for as many people as you can without driving yourself insane so that you can have a real pulse on what's happening in the company. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed what is a special episode of Grit. If you absolutely loved it, reach out to me, post it everywhere on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you absolutely hated it, do not reach out to me and don't post it anywhere. Reach out to my team. Remember links to everything that you heard are in the show notes. I also want to give a really special shout out to all 115 guests that I've had until this point. It is one thing to be successful. It is another thing to be willing to come on a show with Jubin for an hour and a half and talk about the challenges that come with the success. I couldn't be more grateful to my guests for doing that. And I know the audience feels the same way. 